So good to see everybody. This, my friends, is honestly what church is supposed to be like. We've always said we want a church that sings passionately and presses into the presence of God, but we also desire a church that turns into each other. And we need this. And so, you know, I know some weeks it's, uh, there's different environments and different feelings, but it's, uh, what a vibe this morning, uh, just even over popping my head in with the kids and the youth, and it's just really exciting uh, to be together. You okay? You doing okay? Really excited about uh, the journey we've been on, walking through the letter of Ephesians. Uh, we just really love the scriptures. We believe, and I believe, that these letters... Um, as much as they were written to particular groups of people a couple of millennia ago, they probably, more than ever, in our political climate, in our, um, I would say, a progressive climate in our city, have a lot to say to the church. These churches that they were getting, that were getting these letters, were very much in exile. They were, I always say, the church in the first century and the church today is more like indie rock than it is Beyonce. Any, anybody with me? Uh, if you want to join uh, kind of a fringe group, uh, in the first century it was the church, and now we're kind of living, it's different, but we're living in very much the same moment. And that's why I think these, le- obviously the scriptures, as people who follow Jesus, we all say the Bible's important. But I do think these letters to these churches are really important for us. And I know with summer months coming and going, people coming and going, and some of you have had vacation and you look wonderful. Uh, people texted me this week saying, listen, we're going to be away. Uh, we have friends traveling in Europe. And there's all sorts of great things uh, happening during the summer. If you haven't totally caught up, uh, these teachings are online. And I think there'll be a benefit to us as we learn what it means to practice the way of Jesus together. If you have a Bible, and most of you have a phone, there are Bible apps for your phone, by the way, and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. Some of you paper people, though, I love you. We got some paper people. Um, I'm, I'm a paper person as well. It's good. Ephesians chapter 5. So you open up the Bible, page 1. Genesis 1. And when you open it up, the poetic energy of the creation narrative causes your senses to come alive. I don't know about you, as I read the scriptures more, it becomes palpable. Yahweh, who we know now in the Western world, we call this being God, is creating. The land and the sea, the skies, the water, my kids love this part, the animals, And it is all good. It's all good. And then, as you continue to read the narrative, comes the climax of God's work. Anybody know what the climax of God's work is? Humans. Humans. Quote, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us, this triune God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that we, sorry, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Come on, somebody. That's the fun part. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and in the, and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Page one. Humans, there's something different in all of God's creation about these humans. Now, I love 
this little book, this little storybook Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible that's written by a gal named Sally Lloyd-Jones. If you have your children dedicated in this church, it's actually the gift we give uh, to the families. And honestly, it's not just for kids. It's amazing the poetic language that she uses to paraphrase a lot of the stories. And so obviously I have four young kids and I want them to be well-rounded. Anybody? So I don't want them just to be able to put a ball through a hoop and a puck in a net, though that's very important. Um, I want them to be well-rounded. It's obviously summer is a time where we try and do some extra reading. And so I just think what greater than take them through these stories. And so this week I started with Levi at the very beginning. And this is actually how she paraphrases this. I love her language. She says this, but God saved the best for last. From the beginning, God had a shining dream in his heart. He would make people to share his forever happiness. They would be his children, and the world would be their perfect home. So God breathed life into Adam and Eve. When they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, God said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. At the heart of God's story is the reality that God created humans in his image. Most of you guys have probably heard this throughout uh, the, the history of the church is something in Latin called the Imago Dei. God created humans ultimately for the goal, yes, to worship, but to reflect his image to the world. So humans were created in God's good world, but there's something unique and different about these humans, these ones who bear his image, that is different from the animals and the rest of creation, right? So God is rational, and so he created humans to be rational. Uh, for the most part, I think we're rational. And some of you are like, I don't know, I don't know. Humans are rational, I think, for the most part. But have you ever been to, like, say, African lion safari and you get in the big cube van and they take you around? You've probably never seen a zebra and a lion contemplating life together, right? Anybody? I don't think so, right? Humans are different. There's a telos in end. There's a, there's a goal at play in how they reflect God. God is creative, so he created humans to be great, creative. God understands morality, so he creates humans to understand morality. And it's interesting how Sally Lloyd-Jones in this, this little paraphrase of creation says this, you look like me. That's what God says to the humans. Now the question is, what does this mean? Does it mean that God looks or we look like God physically? Well, I, the scriptures say that God is spirit, so we've got to be, I think, careful to create an image of God. The scriptures obviously lead us to be very careful of that. God is a person and has a personhood. He's not a human. Obviously, in Jesus, he came as fully human and fully divine. But God, Yahweh, three in one, is a per not, not necessarily a human, but a person. So I think this probably speaks more about function than it does appearance. Not that we look like God in appearance, but that our function is to steward and co-rule with him. That was actually the objective in the beginning. Now you're thinking, are we talking about Ephesians? We're going to get there in a second. But here's a, a, <laughs> a second, you're like, wait. Um, but here's a few theologians, what they would say, I think, that help explain this idea of the Imago Dei. 
This is what Joshua Mortiz says. He says this, as Abraham was chosen by God from among the nations, so humans are chosen by God among the multiplicity of life forms to serve as priests of the cosmic temple and to represent God's purposes and will to their fellow organic co-heirs of God's kingdom. Big words I know, but he says this, humans are the image of God, not by biological nature or right, but through election from, the, from among the animals by divine grace. We are biological priests by vocation and as such are called and anointed to be agents in the reveal of God's whole creation from Adam to Noah and from Abraham to Christ. So it's more of a function than appearance. Here's another one. A horse Proust, just in case you're looking for a baby name, there you go. Horse Proust, you could use either of those and he or she would be a legend, I guarantee it. He says this, humans were taken into service as the partner of God, a world that probably best and most comprehensively translates the meaning of image and likeness. So he's saying, when we talk about image and likeness, think of the word partner. These terms make no statements about the nature of human beings, but rather intend, listen to this, to describe humanity's function as willed by God. That's what the Imago Dei is. That's what's happening here. Humans represent God in a prescribed realm and receive for this purpose certain qualities which do not make them godlike, but rather elevates them to be partners of God. Or Richard Middleton, he puts it best when he says, the Imago Dei refers to the human rule, that is, the exercise of power on God's behalf in creation. Now let's all take a deep breath. Can we all take a deep breath together? There's no test or quiz, but I do think this helps us understand the unique purpose that was on humans from the very beginning. Actually, the word created in the Genesis, in the Genesis account in Hebrew is the word barah. Can you say barah? It's just fun to say. And most people, a lot of scholars would think this actually means more like divine function or purpose that humans were created for a purpose, to reflect God. Now, we know the story. Sin ruptures this at the seams. The world unravels. We are image bearers. Every human in the city is an image bearer, but that image is tainted and broken. Just look at all the things around us that we see in humanity. When I talk about humanity representing God, some of you are like, oh, not the church I grew up at or not the people I know. I understand, I understand the complexity. I don't want to oversimplize things. But God tended to use humans, eat, stoop down and use humans in the brokenness of this good world. So Abraham was a pre-existing human and his family was to be a family that would bless the nations of the world. And then Israel was this elected people to represent God to the world as imagers, as people who bear God's image. And now we have the daunting task, but the beautiful task of carrying the image of God to the world and representing God to the people around us. It's a weighty call. And this is what we're actually gonna get into in Ephesians 5. I'll put it like this. When we follow Jesus, if you commit your life to following Jesus, God begins to restore us as image bearers to our original intent. 
what God does when he breathes his spirit into us is he wants actually to bring us back, but in our current moment, to this original intent of bearing God's image to the world and being love and light to the world. How are we doing? Sound good? Sound like a plan? Now you open up Ephesians and you realize Paul, a Jewish dude, writing Jews and Gentiles who are trying to sort all of this out in the church. Remember, brothers and sisters, this is fresh. This is brand new. We have all sorts of history to look at, church history. These guys are like picking up a letter that I think Paul didn't even know was going to be scripture. We can debate that. But he writes this, and here they pick it up in their little house churches, trying to sort out how to live out the way of Jesus. And Paul says this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Follow God's example. I think what Paul is saying here ties deeply into us as image bearers. Reflect and reveal who God is through your life. Now, the translation there, follow God's example, I actually think there's a better word uh, in the Greek. It, you know, we have the Greek text and we're trying to translate it in English to make sense for everybody. I think the better word here, and some of your versions probably say it, they use this word imitate. Can we say imitate? I think that this is probably mimetes in Greek. This is probably the best pickup for us in English. You and I, our sole purpose in following Jesus is to imitate him. And listen to, what Paul, listen to what Paul says, as dearly loved children. So get a picture of a parent and a child and a child mimicking or imitating that parent. It happens, you with me? And for good or for worse, right? Any parents with me? Like your kids see and experience you and then sometimes that's portrayed onto other people. So I have a, four, a soon-to-be four-year-old. His name is Jonas. We call him Jojo. He's a joy. And we just catch him now. He's in the moment of his life where he's always imitating and saying things that we say. Dangerous, my friends. So there's an adult in my house. She will remain nameless. She always says this. And we heard Jonas say this. My nerves are shot. <laughs> this week, this is what Jonas said. He turned to like his brother or sister and said, my where did you hear that? Right? My, well, we know the... The lady human in our home, right? As little children, we are now reflectors of our Father to the world. That's, that's really what this is saying. Imitate Christ. Imit imitate God. Follow God's example. My nerves are shot. And interesting, then the call is, is Paul says, listen, now you walk in the way of love. May I remind you, we have a little diagram. We've used this for years. I've used this for a few years. I ripped it off another theologian and pastor. But I think this helps understand. Sometimes we think God is loving and holy and sovereign and merciful and just and, you know, wrathful. God is wrath, some people think. But I actually tend to look at it like this. The scriptures are very clear that God is love. In essence, he's love. And then out of his love, there are all sorts of expressions through that, whether it be a ruling or justice or wrath or grace or mercy. All of that is connected to his love. And so now as people who imitate God, we actually step into the reality that God is love and we reflect that love. And that love looks different in many ways. I think we need to be careful that 
we create a God in our head that can't be angry, because I think sometimes he can be. Just as a parent, you can be angry at times uh, in the purest motive that's out of your love for your children. Um, so I think this is a beautiful picture for us to understand God is love, and now we're to walk in the way of love, just as we're Christ's children. And just now, the picture Paul gives is just as Christ laid his life down for us, that's the way in which we follow. We follow his way into the cross, and we offer our lives up as sacrifices. I always think of it like this. Jesus was the great Eucharist. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. And now we're actually called into that life to give to him and to each other. Follow me? Then verse 3. He says this, and this is where it kind of gets intense. He says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or any greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather give thanksgiving. For of this, you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Whoa. So now we're getting into some things, because remember, the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about God's call. Now we're getting into our, the obedience part, the our walking part. If you were here last week, we actually had a teeter-totter scale, and we talked about how this is what Ephesians is about. God's call and our walk, when they're in balance, it means that they're worthy. When Paul says, live a life worthy, what he's meaning is you're not trying to exercise your way up to get to God and in right standing with God. You're chosen, you're adopted, you're brought into the family, and now you live like it. And here we've got a portion of text where Paul is beginning to describe and especially for the Gentile people. Paul told everybody off, by the way. This is so funny. Like, so he would tell the Gentiles off and tell them to turn away from their immorality, and then he would tell the Jewish people to get over their religiosity. It was just funny. Everybody was mad at Paul because he was telling and correcting this community by the Spirit. And here we get some pictures of what it means to actually follow Jesus as we walk. Now, you may not like this. I get it. But can I just say, can we turn our thinking caps on for a moment? Is that all right? I know it's church. It's a little warm in here. Anybody sweating under their arms? I just feel like this is the room where I sweat under my arms and my knees just to give you a visual. It's good. I think we need to think through this because I get it if some of these things and what Paul is saying, especially in our moment right now, kind of pulls at you. But can I just say this? Every community, think about it. Every community calls its participants into limitations. Every community. It doesn't matter who you are, what community you're a part of, every community has, I know we don't like this word, but I'm going to say it, every community has rules. Ugh, right? And it's, it's, we're in an interesting moment because people tend to, uh, tend to generalize that these limitations are seen in religious groups. So people generalize this about religious groups all the time. But I'm just here to tell you, it doesn't matter what, a conservative group, a progressive group, whatever community you're a part of. I'm not talking church. I'm just talking communities of people. There are always limitations. Can I give you an example? Uh, and illustrations always fall short. That's the, that's the brutality of illustrations. And some, some are probably thinking your illustrations are lame, but it is what it is. I play hockey. 
And some of you are like, sports illustrations again? Yes, till I die. I'm sorry, if you want to be a part of this, there will be sports illustrations forever. But, um, and Heather, she just married into this and didn't realize it now. She hates her life, but it's all good. And, and I'm breeding like athletic monsters who all they want to do is talk about sports. But I'm on a hockey team. And say you wanted to come and play on my hockey team. I would welcome that and we would welcome that and you would play with us. And there are certain guidelines and rules within a hockey game. Are you with me? There's offsides and there's icings. You're only allowed at one point to have six people on at once. There's typically five players and a goalie. If you pull the goalie, you can put another player on, but you're never allowed to have more than six people on at a time. There's certain things you can and cannot do when it comes to penalties and how the game is actually played. Now, if I invited you to come and hang out with the Moose because you wanted to win a rec league title, because the Moose win every year, <laughs> we do, it's just true. It's just like we just bask in our glory. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> so I hope nobody from the Moose ever hears this ever. That would be horrible. But, um, and you came and played, and you were like, I'm just going to do what I want. And so you skate in offside and we're like, yo, you can't do that. Or you, I keep icing the puck, but you don't want the, the whistle blown. Or you start body checking or tripping people just out of nowhere. Or you just continue to jump on as the seventh person. Over time, I think we would say, yo, there's like, there are rules here in which the game is played. Now, imagine if you said to me, you're being destructive. Or... You're being a bigot, or you're not being inclusive. I think that would be interesting. That would be a little odd, would it not? And I think when we come to the scriptures, we have to remember and just use our rationality to realize that every community, it doesn't matter who it is, has a certain base of limitations. And so I just encourage people to think rationally because here's the thing, if anything, this is for the church. So this and what Paul said, he just said here in calling these Gentiles into a new life, this is for the church. It's not for people in the, Paul, never once in the entire scriptures is there anything written from a biblical author to people in culture. It's always for God's people. It's always for the church. What we're reading here is for Jesus followers. And here's the thing, I just want to break it to you. We are a peculiar people. Nod your head with me. We are, guys, we are a very interesting group of people, especially in our current cultural moment. Because we're called by the scripture, just as Israel was called, to be holy. That word means set apart or unique. There's actually practices in the way that we live things out that seem so flipped upside down to the world around us. And the Gentile culture lived in a particular framework when it came to sex, money, and power. And now Paul is calling them out of that and saying, you're going to leave those things behind you. We're holy. Now, I get the tension in the room because uh, we've been at this for a little while, and I would say I've rubbed shoulders with a lot of people. We've typically been a younger church, though we're getting older. Ava keeps finding gray hairs. We have the, the, what is it, the face app now just to show us our future, which is amazing. But here's the thing. I, I rub shoulders with a lot of people, and I get it. You grew up in super legalistic environments, and there was really no explanation why. You know, you came under the mantra, don't smoke, don't drink, and don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. Anybody, this is... Some of you are like, you're bringing up my childhood. And so I empathize with that because I think a lot 
of people have grown up, even in the church, in toxic environments. Uh, there was no answers. There was a lot of instruction, but no answers. There was very little wrestling. I am completely empathetic to that. But I think now, now on the other side of that, and there's been a lot of deconstruction too, which is great. But on the other side of that, I feel like in the name of legalism, we talk very little now about what Paul and the writers talked a lot about, and that's holiness. That's being set apart. That's being this peculiar people that act and live and do stuff that is way, way different than the culture around them. And I kind of feel the tension in the name of well, legalism. Everybody wants to say, well, careful. I get it. I get the legalistic past for some of us. But I think the other side is there's still this call, just as Israel was called out to be this holy people. They failed. There is this call. Remember, not to try and get, we're not holy to try and get to God. It's out of knowing him and him placing his favor and his life on us that we go out and we do this. And so in the text that we just, that little chunk of text that we just read, uh, God, or through Paul, deals with basically what um, I think a guy named Richard Foster calls the, the gods or the idols of our day, sex, money, and power. He says this, verse three, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. We're gonna talk about sexual formation more in the fall. We've got a slew of things, controversial stuff. We're gonna talk about what can be seen as controversial, but I'll just say that, this, the word sexual immorality here is porneia. This is a term used throughout the Greek text speaking of really the Gentile people to turn from the multiplicity of sex acts that was seen in that culture. If you think that this is just a, a 21st century thing, <laughs> travel back to first century Rome. Uh, there was a whole world of worship connected to prostitution, all sorts of stuff, and now Paul is bringing them out and putting this worldview on them to walk in the way of light. And sex was a big thing then, and Paul now has to correct this within the church. And if you read other letters, there's all sorts of th things that he's trying to do to help this community to leave their immorality behind. You're chosen, you're loved, now live like you're worthy, right? Then money, he says this, verse three, uh, remove any hint of greed because th these are improper for God's holy people. So we love to do like one-off um, issues and we like to point at one-off issues. Greed is always right there with sexual immorality in the scripture, always. That Paul wants them now to think in light of the kingdom and in light of the church and how they spend their stuff and what they use their resource towards. And that greed would be something that they would leave behind. Remember this whole idea is putting off the old life and putting on. If you remember that even last week, that illustration with the jacket, we put on this new life in Christ. And then, I don't know if I'm digging deep here, maybe I am, but verse six he says, no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And this, to me, speaks of power. Typically, when people use empty words, it has to do with power. And lying is typically connected with power and trying to elevate oneself, right? And so here we get it. Sex, money, power, a whole new way of living in light of the kingdom of God. And guys, look at me. It's crazy. I, I, it, honestly, this stuff was... It's just as subversive now than it was in the first century. I mean, I remember when I was dating Heather, somebody said to me, aren't you gonna test the car before you own it? And he went vroom, vroom. He literally said vroom, vroom. Wow, okay, all right. You just said vroom, vroom, bro. 
Uh, you, know what's, you know what's interesting about this whole thing? For somebody who is actually really progressive, it seems a little derogatory to equate women to vehicles, but I digress. This is crazy. I think about money and power, sex and money and power, and now the call of life, the call of, that's on our lives to walk in a new way. It's crazy. It's crazy. You mean you're these people that don't spend all on yourself. There's a whole different way of spending and leading your life. There's a whole different way. Listen, I'm an Enneagram 3. If there's anything that I would love, honestly, it's power. Any, any Enneagram 3s with me? Power and success and status. Oh, I fight it every day, but I'm called into a new way of life. And I was called to plant a church in a Canadian progressive city. So that crushes everything, right? Just, just look around. It's a, whole new, it's a whole new world. And so I just want us to be reminded that there are, it doesn't matter just this community, other communities that you're a part of, um, whether it's sports or activity, you realize that there are limitations in everything. And I just want to say to us, we need to have, and I think everything should go under the microscope. I think we should wrestle through all of these things. And again, the fall, we've got a list of stuff that we're just going to look at topics. But I'll say this, we shouldn't back away from us being the only limiting community. Everybody's limited. And I think we need to point to these signs in culture to say we have certain values and we hold to certain things and we're not bigots and we're not closed-minded or narrow as oftentimes people want to push religious groups into uh, that corner. I think we're all religious and we all hold limitations of our lives. It's just what do we want to choose? And Paul now is leading this community in how we do it. And I think we pick it up later. You with me? Hang in there. Nod your head just so you're with me. All right. Verse 8. We're almost there. He says this, for once, and he's just echoing here this whole new life. For you were once a darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, verse 13, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And then, most scholars think here what Paul is going to do in the next couple of verses is he's actually going to quote a, a, maybe the first line of a hymn that was used when people were baptized in the early church. And it goes like this. Throw it up. Can you throw up the next slide? It goes like this. Do you want me to sing it to you? Want me to create a hymn? This is why it is set. No, okay, we won't do that. But uh, you're feeling it. Uh, This was the line. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. I love that. So as you go into the water and then come out, this is what it said. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, be very careful then. How you live, not as unwise, but as wise. You're being brought into this new life, making the most of every opportunity because of the days that are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. There's a word. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from our heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to the God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. This is the reading of God's. We could pack up and go home. Now, very interesting here. Um, Paul says, don't get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. 
Debauchery is such an interesting word, especially in English. Most of us have very obviously negative connotations to that word, and it, and it is. Probably the better term, though, for us in the 21st century is it leads, drunkenness leads to lawlessness or a dissolute life. And you know that. I don't have to tell you that. Drunkenness leads to lawlessness. Uh, Luch Lombardi, a friend of ours, great guy, part of our network of churches, he did a little commentary on Ephesians. He says, drinking or filling up with wine will lead to emptiness, but letting God's spirit fill us up will lead to fullness. And this is what Paul is saying here. You can't be filled with the spirit when you're filled with the spirit. Tweet that one. You... Thanks. Nobody ever laughs. This is great. Heather continues to remind me that I'm not funny, and I just keep trying. But in all reality, this is actually what, this is, this is for real. You can't be filled with the Spirit when you're filled with something else that animates you. Now, if you know me, you know that I think a glass of wine can be a gift from God. Back porch kids asleep, Harry Potter. (laughs) And you think I'm joking, but I'm not. I'm in. I'm fully in. I read the first book a few weeks ago, and I'm like knees deep now in the second one. Ava and I are reading them together. Not, Not together. We're like reading them at the same time and discussing. It's like amazing. So I'm not even joking. It's true. And I believe, obviously, wine can be a gift from God. But Paul is very concerned with being, if, listen, getting drunk on wine demarks the, the image that's in us. We're image bearers, so the spirit, he's, it's interesting that he's correlating drunkenness now with the work of the spirit in our lives. Because we're people that are so filled up with God, we don't do, we don't get to that place. And I'll just say this, be weary, very weary of those who are only animated when they have a drink in their hand. Because we're people of the Spirit. I think it's a gift. You know me. Now, I I think many should be very cautious with this and have abused this in the past and need to be very cautious. But I believe it's a gift, absolutely. But I'm very weary of people, especially Christians, who are only animated when they have a drink in their hand because we live under a whole different ethos, and that's the Spirit leads us. The Spirit The Spirit actually, the Scriptures lead us to believe that the Spirit is the one that animates us. What I love about Paul is he doesn't just say, don't do it. He says, no, he's always giving the kingdom vision for how God's people live in the world. We're animated by a different spirit. We're called in. And if you know, it's not just in the 21st century in London, all the students will be back very soon, is this kind of what the text here says, debauchery, this emptiness, as Luch would call it, is alive and well. Drunkenness is alive and well. In the first century, it was a way of life. And now Paul is saying, listen, you guys are now the ones that are animated by the Holy Spirit. You walk in love and light, and it's different. And he doesn't just say, don't do it. He says, listen, be very careful in how you live this out because you're marked by the Spirit. You with me? That's the end of the text. Weighty, long text, but I can imagine just in this whole idea of being imitators of God and imitators of Jesus, some of you may be sitting here thinking, I can't do this. Can I tell you? Yes, you can. You can. You and I can imitate Christ with everything that we have. Why? 
because we have God's word. And I'm not just big on the Bible to just be big on the Bible because that's what evangelical Christians are all about. I believe that Jesus is the full revelation of God. This is what the scriptures say about Jesus. And the only way that I can get the full revelation of him is by engaging his life through the text. And this, my friends, we're going to talk more in the fall. I keep pushing us to the fall. If I'm overselling, it is what it is. But this is a book of strange new things, a library that leads us in the way of Jesus. And if you really want to know and, and engage in this, it's not just about, hey, you need to read the Bible. It's like, oh my goodness, if you want the full revelation of God, you and I have God's word. And we can know. And listen, there's things we wrestle through and we stiff arm our way through for sure. But we have God's word. But not only that, we have God's word, but we also have God's community. And we don't think about this a lot. We're so Bible-heavy now, uh, post-Reformation, and I'm thankful for the scriptures, obviously, but we have God's community. And collectively, we imitate God together. Remember, this is to a church, a group of people, and Jesus practiced everything that he did in community. So not only do we have the word that's sharpening us and leading to live like Jesus, but we also have the community that keeps us accountable, that sits around a living room table and discusses the things of life and has meals together, and has events together that sharpen ourselves. And we come together on Sunday mornings and turn our chairs into each other and get to know each other. And we come around the word and we do all of these things. Your kids right now, very intentionally are in lessons and themes that are growing them in the way of Jesus. I saw our junior high group, they had to pull out extra chairs this morning. I'm just like, this is so amazing that these young kids have a community of people where they just not airdropped a text, but they've got a whole community of people around them that are leading them and, and leading them in the way of Jesus. And Jesus practiced this in community. So we have God's word, we have God's community, and we have God's spirit. Just like it says here, the same spirit that dwelt in Jesus, lives within you and me. And Jesus did everything he did by the power of the Spirit, and we have that same access, both as individuals, but I'll say this, as a community together. And it's daunting, but I'll just leave us with this as we come to the tables. As we imitate Christ, I just want to remind us, we're not climbing a ladder to get to God, but I'll also say this, this community of imitators is the way in which the world is going to know Jesus. Crazy, isn't it? You know, sometimes, and I pray prayers like this all the time as a pastor dude, God, just do this, and God, just do that, and please do this, and please do that. And a lot of times I think God is actually looking, going, this is what I've got you here for. As a community, and certainly we lean into God's spirit and his work and power, but what I mean is sometimes I pray prayers that God has already instructed me to do something about. You following us? And what the church has been instructed to do. And I know it's daunting, but the world is actually, Jesus will be revealed through those who bear his spirit together, imitators. So the call is, is to image God. Adam and Eve in the garden. Israel, Abraham and Israel through the Old Testament. Jesus shows us what the full revelation of God is and now he says, sayonara my friends, I'm leaving you my spirit and we pick this letter up a couple thousand years later and we go, okay, you know what? Now it's time for us to lean in and be these people that imitate God. You with me? You up for it? This is the call.